Hey, Cole, are you ready for this week's movie to kick off the holiday season? Yes, I love Christmas. Well, good, because this year Santa's bringing everybody the same present. Childhood trauma. I've already got enough. No, thank you. Welcome to Second to Die, the horror fiction podcast where we talk about lots of things. And sometimes horror. And sometimes horror. I'm Max. And I'm Cole. And we're your hosts this holiday season. I hope everybody is doing well. Your ho-ho hosts. Yeah. Yeah, definitely that. Even though, honestly, these days are just blending together. (laughs) Yeah, no, I... No. I was like... What day is it? May? I don't know. Anyways, so this is the first movie I'm doing for the holiday season. They're all going to be kind of like holiday, probably Christmas themed, because honestly, Christmas just tends to be more of a prevalent theme in horror movies. If anyone knows of other ones, feel free to let me know. Maybe I'll do one, but I'm just not thinking of any Hanukkah horror movies off the top of my head. That just is what it is. Also, which let me go ahead and step in here because we do try to have some diversity in this show, but we aren't trying to force our religion on anybody because Jesus and I have decided to see other people. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know how else to phrase it. Like we celebrate Christmas, but in a very secular manner. I mean, I think you can just get into the holidays, whatever holiday it is. I mean, and sometimes, to be honest, I think at this point, to be truthful with you, Christmas season has almost become this, like, non-religious experience. I don't know. But okay. you're saying that from the point of privilege as someone who grew up in a Catholic household. I don't know what that means. Other people find it very oppressive. <laughs> oh. Well, I was oppressed by that religion for a long time, so it's just, like, turnabout is fair play. I mean, but... t- talking about childhood <laughs> trauma, you are an altar boy. Yeah. Anyways, so, okay, this movie, because I haven't even said it, (laughs) I'm doing, I was originally going to, well, I might do what I was about to say another, like, for the next week, so I'm not even going to say it. This week, we are doing the 1984 classic, Silent Night, Deadly Night. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy, that is a title. Yeah, it was directed by Charles E. Sellier Jr. It's kind of an interesting film, I mean, it's actually got this, like, cult following to it, and it's pretty okay. Such a glowing review. It's pretty okay. Well, the first part of the movie is good, but, like, the movie has... I don't even know if I want to call it problematic, but the movie's kind of got problematic messages. But there's also kind of an interesting thing about it that I'll kind of get into that makes me like it, because it does stand out from the slasher genre. Also, it was highly controversial when it was released and ended up getting pulled... Um, from theaters like 10 days after the release or something like that. Jesus. Why was it controversial? Well, I'm glad you asked. It was controversial. So, okay. Basically, it was controversial. This is literally how not like modern times the 80s were. It was controversial. People like lost their shit because... The Waiting ki- to find out why it's controversial. The killer in it is dressed as Santa Claus. And so the promo materials had a lot of like killer santa claus stuff and like one of the big pictures from it which is actually great is this chimney and there's like a hand holding a bloody axe like a santa 
wearing a Santa suit. That sounds amazing. It's really cool. But like all these like PTAs and like broadcasting systems and like angry, I don't know, like angry moms were like, this is ridiculous. You're going to scar our children. You can't use Santa Claus for a cheap thrill. The critics like slash this movie, no pun intended, because they basically said it was a cheap slasher and had no originality. All of these statements are wrong. Also, because what was the problem is normally I would just say, well, don't let your kid watch this movie. The issue people had with it was the promotional material was obviously like widely available. Like you would see movie posters and see commercials on TV because back in the 80s, people watched TV instead of just streaming everything. And so people got really upset by it. And the studio ultimately ended up kind of caving and pulling the film. And actually, the day that the film was released, they stopped all advertisements, period, from it because of all that pressure. But that being said, the film still outgrossed A Nightmare on Elm Street, which was released the same day. Oh. And it ended up making $2.5 million on a budget of 750000 nice. even with a limited release, because the film did not stay out, like, that long. Ten there. days. Yeah. Anyway, any it, game. <laughs> yeah. So it ended up developing this cult following and spawned a series of sequels for, as a matter of fact, as well as a fifth installment that didn't really have any connection. Well, the fourth and the fifth one don't really have any connection to the original film, but the second and third one are sort of directly related to it. There was also some loose remake of it, I hear, in 2012, which I have not seen and... Honestly, I wasn't even aware it existed, so I don't think it was that great. But maybe it's an amazing movie and I just need to watch it. Getting back to it, as I said, I had uh, two sequels. Silent Night, Deadly Night 2 and Silent Night, Deadly Night 3. Better watch out. I just like these titles. That's the only reason I'm talking about them. I love it so much. And then the other ones were Silent Night, Deadly Night 4, Initiation, which is lame. And Silent Night, Deadly Night 5, The Toymaker. So neither of them had... Puns based off of Christmas carols, which is lame. I know. I wasn't super into that. Rude. I haven't seen those either. So disappointing. <laughs> yeah. So the film star, the main star of the film is uh, the character Billy. He's played by Robert Brian Wilson. I'm not really going to go through the cast. He's really the main person in this. There are some supporting people. The only shout out I will give is there's a character of Denise played by Linnea Quigley, whom we both now love. From Night of the Demons. She's the one who puts the lipstick in her boob. Oh, God. Boobs that I have seen because I walked behind you while you were watching this movie. And it was just titties everywhere, which is not a common thing in this house. <laughs> Honestly, she... I think she's just, like, super comfortable with her body, which I appreciate. And she was all about showing her boobs in the 80s. And she made a career off of it and is great. I good, love her. Good for her. She's... I mean, she's a blessing. She's a whole blessing. <laughs> yeah. So this movie, um, I'm going to get, oh, the other kind of interesting thing about this movie, the, it opens up with this like creepy song, but then also they play the song throughout the movie. And I'm going to play some for you right now. Actually, the part of the song I'm not going to play right now is this little girl singing it, which I literally started playing before we were, while we were setting up and you had this look of horror on your face. Because- Absolutely not. Children <laughs> singing is terrifying. But th- <laughs> yeah. Kimberly, the like, um... I can't remember if it's the intro or the outro for their podcast because I tend to like binge it so it all blurs together. But it is 
one of their children, I can't remember if it's Rowan or Laura's daughter, singing Ring Around the Rosie. Absolutely not. Yeah. It has, no. It has that vibe to it for sure. And then, but then the other, throughout the movie, the other version of this song is like more of a regular version, which is supposed to sound very holiday-esque. But to be honest, I find it super creepy too. And you're going to listen to it right now. I just remembered also, sorry, not to cut in. It is Laura's daughter singing Ring Around the Rosie. And the outro is... Kimberly's daughter going, night, night. All right. Okay, so, Silent Night, Deadly Night, the scary Santa song. Santa's watching, Santa's creeping. Now you're nodding, now you're sleeping. Were you good for mom and dad? Santa knows if you've been bad. There might be a treat for you. All right, that's enough of that. The funny part about that is as soon as the doo-wop beat kicked in, you were like dancing in your chair. And then as soon as the lyrics started, you froze. <laughs> I mean, you know me. I do love like doo-wop, but make it terrifying. Mm. It's a very niche genre, but it's one that I deeply appreciate. Yeah. That song, I love that song. They use it in the movie and it's very fitting. And you know I how much I love music. And so I was like, Already very into it because of that song in it and just the kind of craziness. The weird thing about this movie, I'll say, which is very unlike a lot of 80s horror movies, the first half of this movie it moves very quickly and is really good. And then it kind of unfortunately trails off at the end. But I'll talk to you a little bit about it. I'm going to get into it because I've already been talking forever about Santa. So let's get into some killing. Okay, so it opens up Christmas Eve 1971. I'm going to go through this really quickly because it's just, it's backstory. Although, important backstory. Go for it. There is a family. It's mom and dad and two kids, a baby and kind of a toddler. The toddler's name is Billy. They're driving to go see uh, Grandpa, who apparently is at the Utah Mental Facility. That's literally what it's called. They zoom in on a sign for it. It seems very weird. Oh, boy. But so basically, they go there and Grandpa is kind of in this like catatonic state and not responding. Then the parents go to talk to the director of the facility and they leave Billy with grandpa who immediately starts talking and basically telling Billy that like something about the holidays and Billy's like, I'm excited for Santa Claus. And grandpa is basically like that. Basically, grandpa says Santa only brings presents to kids who have been good all year and the other ones he punishes. And then he says, if you see Santa Claus tonight, you better run, boy. You better run for your life. So that's like not a good thing to say to a kid. Oh boy. So then it cuts to the scene where there's this convenience store and a guy in a Santa suit robs the convenience store and then ends up shooting the clerk and fleeing. Right? Okay. So that and this all happens literally in like the first 15 minutes of the movie. Like it's not a drawn out part. I'm on board. So then the family is driving and 
they see a car broke down and it's a guy in a Santa suit who is like trying to fix the car. So they are like, hey, do you need a ride? And he's like, no. And he pulls a gun on them and he they try to speed off. He shoots the car and hits the dad. So the car crashes and Billy run gets out, runs into the bushes. The Santa like opens the driver's side door. Billy sees his dad fall dead onto the floor. Santa then grabs his mother out. This is all Christmas Day or Christmas Eve, by the way. Santa grabs his mother out of the car, throws her on the ground, slams her on the ground, rips her shirt open, and then cuts her throat. All while Billy is watching. Because you got to rip her shirt open first. Well, we needed some boobs first. If you don't see titties, it doesn't count. If you don't see boobs in the first like 20 minutes of a horror movie, is it even a horror movie? Oh, boy. Yeah, so needless to say, this is the start of Billy's childhood trauma, and Christmas is not his favorite holiday. Okay, so after that, we jump to 1974, so three years later, and Billy is at the St. Mary's Home for Orphaned Children, because he's an orphan now. So they're they're basically in a school scene, it's like kind of Christmas time, and they're supposed to draw pictures, and Billy puts his picture up on the chalkboard, and then he gets sent to the principal's office, because he drew a picture of Santa with a bunch of knives sticking out of him, and a reindeer with its head cut off. So the nuns were like, you shouldn't have done that. Now you need to be punished. The word punished is used very frequently in this movie and is a big part of it. And it's weird. So, okay. So then they send Billy up to his room and say he can't come out. He goes up to his room, but hears a noise in the next room, looks through a keyhole, and there's two people having sex. And the nun catches him and basically tells him that what the two people in there were doing was very naughty and that they thought they wouldn't get caught, but they did. So... Now they need to be punished because they're doing naughty things. So that's probably also a terrible lesson to teach a child. So anyways, then it ends up being Christmas Day. Mother Superior forces Billy to sit on Santa's lap because she's going to fix his behavior. He freaks the F out, punches Santa in the face, and runs away. <laughs> I mean, back in the 80s, I honestly think that that's exactly how they were treating like traumatized children. Yeah, like, I know. You saw Santa kill your parents? Well, you're going to sit in his lap right now. Anyway, so then we jump 10 years later to the spring of 1984. Billy is grown up and smoking hot. Oh, okay. I'm interested now. Yes. Um, And super damaged. So, like, I mean, get the fire extinguisher because it is getting warm in here. I mean, you married me. You clearly (laughs) like them damaged. (laughs) Oh god, I know. So okay, so then the nuns help him get a job at a drug at um not a drugstore. The nun it's like a toy store. Okay, but my brain autocorrected drug to drug den. And I was like, those are very supportive nuns. Yeah. So then the nuns like helped him find a life of crime and he lived happily ever after. No, they got him a job, but it's at this toy store. And Everything is going fine. We get this weird... So, like, Billy, I think, has a crush on his coworker, Pamela. We get this really weird sex dream scene where you kind of get to see... Like, it's a weird angle, but you get to see Billy's butt, and it's that which is kind of nice. And he's having this, like, dream about Pamela, but then all of a sudden, like, uh, Santa appears and stabs him in the dream. So then he wakes up and is terrified. It was a nightmare. Santa's watching. Santa's creeping. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So then everything is going really good at his new job until Christmas season rolls around. Of course. And then everything starts to get real bad. So I hear that goes that way for a lot of people working in retail. Yeah, essentially. Yeah, oh, God, I know, right? Like, 
I don't work. I've never worked in retail, but man, I know a lot of people have some serious retail trauma from the holidays. Ultimately, kind of like this is maybe close to mid filmish, but like ultimately, we get the plot device where the employee who was going to play the Santa in the toy store broke his ankle, couldn't do it, and they don't have anyone else to do it, so they get Billy to play Santa. Mm-hmm. And now keep in mind, the store people do not know of his past traumas. Yeah. And Billy does not say, I would not like to play Santa. So they get him in the Santa costume. He's does his Santa thing. They don't really show much of that day. But then like at 7 p.m. the store closes because I, I this is the early 80s. And apparently that's when stores close I'm back then. And they're going to have their employee Christmas party. So... They decide to force the traumatized kid playing Santa to drink a bunch of alcohol. And then the Pamela, the girl he has a crush on, goes back behind some toy rows with this other guy who is kind of like his coworker slash supervisor. And Billy follows them and sees him. They're like kind of making out, but then like he goes too far and he like starts to kind of sexually assault her and like rips her shirt open. And then like he immediately gets this like flashback to his mom and then he like snaps. So, like, it's he's like Gonzo's from there. So, he ends up throwing him off her, strangling him with Christmas lights. Yes. Which, it's intense. He literally, like, wraps the Christmas lights around his neck and then picks him up one-handed and strangles him that way. And then, for some reason, Pamela is like, you're crazy. Well, I guess because she just witnessed a murder. But Pamela's like, you're crazy. Get away from me. <laughs> so, he decides to kill Pamela as well. He stabs her. Oh, boy. All right. Yeah. So then he systematically proceeds to kill everybody who works at the store while dressed as Santa with either an axe or a bow and arrow. And then he leaves. Jesus. Okay. And then he leaves. Meanwhile, the nun had called earlier and been like, where's Billy? And the store owner was like, oh, he's busy right now because he's being Santa. And the nun is like, "Uh oh, <laughs> so she had gone to check on the store <laughs> and she walks in because she obviously knew about all that so then she walks in and sees everybody dead and is like oh man oops <laughs> yeah this oopsies, is probably a, oopsies. this is probably a bad job placement that i did for him a toy store knowing that christmas was going to come along you know anyways So then Billy kind of goes around town on this sort of killing spree dressed as Santa. And the first place that he goes to is this this place where it's Linnea Quigley's character, Denise. And she's like babysitting and she's making out with her boyfriend. And there's like the little girl upstairs. And she actually like almost comes downstairs in the scene where she's like topless, like making out with her boyfriend. And it's like, no, go upstairs, go upstairs. Anyway. So then she hears something at the door. She thinks the cat needs to come inside. Well, it's not the cat. It's Billy. And so then he chases her around and she's all screaming. It's the scene you saw. She's topless. She's just got titties flying everywhere. Ultimately, Billy catches her and impales her on a mounted stag's head that's on the wall. And that's how she dies. Oh, my God. I love it. And then he kills the boyfriend in a less interesting way. Mm. And then... He goes upstairs because the little girl is there. And I know people are thinking, they don't kill kids in horror movies, right? And you would be right. They don't. But the scene is pretty funny because he's like, it's very tense. And he's like, have you been a good girl? And she's like, yes. 
And he's like, you haven't been naughty at all? And she's like, no. And he's like, are you sure? And he's like pulling something out of his pocket and you realize it's a bloody box cutter and you think he's going to like stab her. And she's like, "Uh uh-huh. And so he's like, okay. So he gives her the bloody box cutter as a present. And then he leaves. This movie is such a train wreck and I love it so much. It's pretty good, actually. The tension is pretty good and the scenes are pretty, pretty good. Unfortunately, that's probably, in my opinion, the climax of the movie. And then it sort of teeters off a little bit. Mm. He, yeah. He does kill some more people. He kills this group of, like, sledders, kind of. It, it's not very interesting, nor is it, like, I don't know. There's nothing fun to talk about, so I'm not going to talk about it. But he kills a few other people. Then there's a scene. So then they know that, like, Billy is dressed as Santa killing people. So they put this APB out for a Santa killer. So then there's a cop that's, like, at a school, and he sees this, like, Santa Claus going up to these kids. And the cop decides to shoot the Santa Claus dead in the back because he's like, stop, stop, and the Santa doesn't respond. And it turns out that it was the deaf priest going to the school to give candy to kids. So that was a mistake. Oops. They do kind of treat it as an oops. Like, nobody really seems to care. And... I was literally about to say, just like in real life, that cop doesn't lose his job and nobody cares. So anyways, nope, you can say it. (laughs) So that's basically how they treat that. And, but there is this brief time where they're like, okay, we're all safe now. But then they're like, no, they're not safe. Keep in mind that every time Billy kills somebody, he literally starts, he says the words punished, punished, which is really cheesy. I'm Uh, not going to lie. But I love it. (laughs) Yeah. Ultimately, he ends up going back to the orphanage with the Mother Superior and essentially, like, goes in there. Mother Superior is now in a wheelchair because she's gotten old, and he's literally about to kill that abusive nun bitch. I didn't mention, she's very horrible to him. She, like, whips him with a belt when he catches people, like, the people having sex and, like, all this stuff and, like, obviously makes him sit on Santa's lap. She's not, like, a cool person. So he raises his axe and is going to kill her, and then he's shot from behind by the sort of detective that the other nun had gotten to come find him. Then he's killed, and even, like, while he's dying, like, he falls down and, like, grabs her arm, and she, like, shakes him off of her. And it's like, whatever, we're going to talk about it in a second because this movie's almost over. So then, essentially, he dies in front of all the kids in the orphanage. Jesus Christ. And while he's dying, he looks up at the other kids and goes, naughty. And then the movie ends. So so there's that. That's very abrupt. All right. So I have some thoughts about this movie. And this is the first thing I'll start on. What I found kind of interesting about this movie and what I think sets it apart from other movies in the early 80s, especially from horror movies, is that it focuses so much on the killer and the killer's story and the backstory. And you don't really get a lot of the, like, what made this person this way. Because I think, like, when we talked about slasher films in general, part of what some people say defines a slasher is that you have this killer that nobody understands. It's just kind of this monster for the sake of being a monster. You don't know why he's killing necessarily, other than some vague... Sometimes you'll get, like, a he was an escape from a mental institution situation. But, like, aside from that, you don't really learn about these people's 
childhoods. And this did like a pretty extensive look at this kid's childhood to try to explain why essentially he's triggered by Christmas. So I thought that was kind of interesting and different. I do think that the way that it kind of portrays trauma is a little bit problematic. Problematic. But at the same time, I don't think in the 1980s they were necessarily like taking a lot of those childhood traumas very seriously. And I think like kids who were sent to the orphanage were just kind of like thrown aside and been like, all right, deal with it. Now, I think it's an extreme thing, but I also think that, I don't know, part of me while I was watching it the whole time is thinking like, I don't know, they're kind of like, well, I got the impression that it's like, well, kids who experience childhood trauma are just broken and then they become killers. I don't know. There's something weird about it to me. I like that they kind of like did that backstory on him, but I don't know. I guess like Psycho does something sort of similar by focusing sort of on the Norman Bates character. And I didn't necessarily find that problematic, but there was something weird about showing this like kid who goes through this thing and then having him just like snap one day because of his childhood traumas. I don't know. It was weird. There's a lot of strange parts to it. I don't really, I had more to say about it, but then I'm like, now I'm thinking, I'm just like, I don't know. I actually think it's enjoyable. Like for a Christmas movie, it's pretty good. I would put this on like a holiday watch list. I don't think it's like problematic as a movie. I think that like sometimes you see things and you're like, yikes, it's very eighties. I mean, like the, there's like sexual harassment in his job workplace that just seems to be okay with everybody, but I don't think it's supposed to be sexual harassment in the movie. It's like normal interactions. You're like, wow, people really behaved like this in the 80s. Yikes. Anyway, any more things to say about it? Silent Night, Deadly Night. I will say, because I know we're not ever watching these. In the second and third movie, the killer is actually Billy's younger brother who was at the orphanage and who was a baby in the car when the parents got killed. And apparently he becomes the Santa killer. I, I hate it. <laughs> I wanted... So, I really... The first part of the movie is very good. I liked the deaths. They were all so fun. That's what I think I liked about them is, like, the Christmas light strangling. The uh, impaling on the, like, stag's head. Like, that kind of stuff was cool. And I honestly wish it had more deaths that were, like, Christmas-themed deaths. Because that's what I'm looking for in a Christmas horror movie. The problem is, is once you reach to, like... The three quarters part, actually maybe even less than that, the halfway part, the killings become kind of like basic stuff. Yeah. And then it just gets to the point where you're like, why is this even happening? Also, just like a cop shooting the guy to be like, that's how they stop the killer. That's not very, I don't know. It could have been a little bit more inventive, but it is still okay. And it gave us a glorious song. Gave us a glorious song. Also, I have, I don't know what else, I, I should look up to see what the LSAT actor has been in, but he was, he's good. He does this creepy smile thing that's like effective and he's cute. So, you know. So anyways, that's my first holiday season film with Silent Night, Deadly Night. Now tell me what you're going to talk about. All right. Uh, much like with the holiday films, I don't have a holiday book for you. I do next week though. Super excited. Stay tuned. It was insane. But I do have another comic for you oh i'm super excited uh except not really because i found that trying to write up a script for this podcast for like graphic novels and comics 
is not very easy. <laughs> I actually didn't know that it was a comic, but now that you say that, I, of course, see the DC logo on the cover of it. Yes. So this week I am doing Basketful of Heads by Joe Hill, who, as I'm sure most people who are horror fans enough to be listening to this podcast already know, is Stephen King's son. And then all of the artwork was done by Leo Max. L-E-O-M-A-C-S. I have a feeling that is a pen name. But this person is also the artist behind the graphic novel Lucifer. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, It is a limited series. So like what's in the book that I did is all. There will be no other issues. It was the first release in the Hill House Horror Comics collection that DC Comics put out that is kind of like run by Joe Hill, which is why it's Hill House. Get it? Yuck, yuck, yuck. I'll probably read the rest of them, so you might hear me reference it, but unless one of them's really good, I really have found that I don't like doing comics and graphic novels for the format of this podcast, so we'll see. Yeah, I know. They can be a little bit difficult to talk about. I almost wonder if maybe they would be better as like a mini episode or just like a shout out, like a story or something. Yeah, because pacing for a comic book and a comic series has to be so tight that there's not really a way to talk about anything without talking about everything. Yeah. But Basketful of Heads came out earlier this year, so I'm going to try and be careful about letting people know about the plot points before I talk about them. Thankfully, the deaths you see coming from a mile away, and those are the best part anyway. So, (laughs) Uh, To briefly describe the cover, we've got a figure in shadows wearing a blood-streaked rain slicker holding a hatchet and a basket covered with a tattered American flag, and we assume that this basket is full of heads. And the tagline on the back is, heads will roll, because of course it is. (laughs) I actually didn't realize that was an American flag. Now that you say that, I see it, though. Actually, if you look real closely, there is an eyeball. Like, there's an eye peeking out from some of the folds. Quick rundown of the blurb, because it's quite short anyway. June Branch is in trouble. She's trapped on Brody Island with nowhere to run. Her boyfriend Liam has been kidnapped, and four bloodthirsty escaped convicts will stop at nothing to find her. All poor June has to defend herself is a strange Viking axe with the terrifying power to decapitate a person and leave their head still talking. If she's going to save Liam and herself, June will have to keep a cool head, or even a basket full of them. <laughs> That sounds great, actually. It, it It's good. I'll talk about my issues with it. But, like, overall, this was good. It was fun. Uh, so our story does open with June. She is visiting Liam, who is a summer worker for the police chief. We pretty quickly find out, as the board tells us, that some convicts have escaped from a prison transport. A fun little Easter egg here, though, is the transport says that it is Derry County, Maine. Like, Derry is an it. Oh, cool. Fun times. Tying in with dear old dad. The sheriff sends Liam and June to his house to hold down the fort for his wife and son while he's out looking for the convicts. Like, I guess to keep them safe. The son is also an adult, but the sheriff's real shitty towards his son. This has to be a pretty small town, I guess, because let me tell you, people actually escape from jail quite often. Really? Sleep well. Oh, yeah. Well, so you have to understand, sometimes jails have a lot of these, like, work programs. So there's a difference between prison and jail. 
Jail is like your local little situation. And then prison is like what most people think jail is, where it's like the big compounds. Jails have a lot of these programs where people like can get out and work and stuff like that. And sometimes these people don't come back and then are technically escaped from jail. Oh, okay. Well, this was like, these are like convict convicts, like orange jumpsuit, like scary. (laughs) Yeah. Also, it's an island. So yes, very small. Okay. So when they get there, Madam Sheriff is what I'm going to call her. I've forgotten what her name is. She's very briefly present. Uh, She's giving June a brief tour, and she shows her the sheriff's collection of museum-quality Viking artifacts. The sheriff's collection of them? Yes. Okay. That's a normal thing a sheriff would have a collection of. Because for some inexplicable reason, the sheriff is extremely wealthy. Or, I'm sorry, police chief, sheriff, I don't. Either. the same thing? They're not the same thing, but either way, none of them are making priceless Viking artifact money. Police chief. That's who he is. Sorry. I went down further. But yeah, the police chief calls shortly after because the man who runs the boat slips for the island is dead. So he has asked his wife to go into town to talk to like boat slip guy's wife. Be like, hey, sorry, your husband's dead. Okay. Yeah, that's not great. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm-mm. Nope. Uh, so this leaves Liam and June alone in the police chief's house. And that's where they are when the convicts attack. They just attack a house. Yes. As convicts tend to do. Um, so June hides in a laundry hamper and Liam, there's like shouting and then a lot of silence, but fun fact in an interview with the artist, he said that this was his favorite part to illustrate because the tension of the scene where she's hiding in a laundry hamper to him serves as like a really distinct divide between the kind of lighthearted mood in the beginning of this girl visiting her boyfriend over the summer into the intensity of the rest of the story. Sure. Uh, and when she emerges, she finds one of Liam's fingers. It's yes. been it's just been severed. <laughs> it's in a shattered display case with the Viking artifacts. Okay. And there is still a convict in the house, and he attacks her. So she grabs the closest thing to defend herself, which is the Viking axe. Because of course it is. And this is when she realizes that the heads stay alive when she chops them off, so she sets out on a mission to save Liam. With this man's head in a basket. That's a... That, I don't know. I feel like it takes a certain type of person to want to keep a basket of talking heads. Well, she's just got one, but don't worry, she gets more. So I'm going to take a break from plot here because this is such a new book. And I want to make sure that anyone listening who wants the option of reading it for themselves is able to do so. So I'm going to talk about a couple of impressions that I had of it. And then when I'm ready to get back to the plot and spoil everything, I will just give people a heads up. Okay. So first off, I will say that this book is very satisfyingly tense, which I really appreciate. You've seen me watch shows and be like, oh, no, I wonder if the titular character is going to die in episode two of this season when there's four seasons. (laughs) And I didn't really feel that way with this book. Like, I knew I knew that eventually the basket had to be full of heads. So during times when June is in danger, it's like, oh, she only has one head. Like, there has to be more. Otherwise, it would be like head in a basket instead of <laughs> basket full of heads. Like, so logically speaking, in my mind, I'm like, she's fine because the title hasn't been fulfilled yet. 
But the pacing of the story is done really well, where even though you know she's going to be fine, you don't know how she's going to be fine, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure. Like, it's it's done in a way where it still elicits a reaction, which I appreciate. Um, but one negative I did find is that June is, like, super sexualized. And I know it's supposed to be in the 80s, and I know it's supposed to be a comic. Like, I'm not naive. There's one very specific part that bothered me. So here is where I ask you, Max, when was the last time you were walking in the rain and you tilted your head back to catch raindrops? Well, I can't do that because I feel like rain is disgusting. Well, especially in New Orleans. City rain is not okay. But if you were to do so, would you do it with your tongue out and your eyes closed as your thin t-shirt is clung tightly to your young, pert breasts while rivulets of semen, I'm sorry, um, rainwater are running down your face? Well, I don't have young, tight breasts, I can tell you that. <laughs> there's, I'm sorry, there's just literally a frame. It has nothing to do with the plot, nothing. She's walking through rain, but she's been walking through it for a hot minute. Like, there's nothing new here. Where she's talking to the head in a basket and just is like, it looks like, I'm sorry, it looks like the end of a porn. And it bothered me. I don't know why it bothered me so much, but it did. It bothered me. I wouldn't know. I'd never make it to the end of porn. Oh, God. <laughs> um, and it's just one frame. And who knows? Like, maybe it was meant to be innocent. But it stood out to me. And honestly, it stood out to me so much that it is the only frame in that entire comic that I remember in detail. And I'm annoyed because it could be removed and nothing would change. I can't really comment on it because I can't see it. But that's a fair assessment. Please hold. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, it's not... It's actually different than what I thought it was going to be. The face she's making is a little bit much. <laughs> Trust me, I've made that face many a time in my life. The face she's making is give it to me, daddy face. It is. That's a... even. Okay, the closest thing I could say is... I've done that or had done that with like snowflakes. I think that's a little bit more common than raindrops. But I still don't think that you make that face. It's it's a face, y'all. It's a face. Yeah, that is a little bit of that's like rain. You you want like a rain bukkake on your face. Yeah. Anyway, we can stop talking about that. Uh I just it really bothered me. Yeah, I could see that. Anyway, Back to the plot. So here is where if you want to read Basketful of Heads, you want to stop listening and then come back and join us for Max's reactions. Uh, As June is leaving the police chief's house, she runs into a man named Mr. Hamilton and he gives her a coat, which incidentally enough ends up being the blood-soaked rain slicker. And while they're trying to clear a downed tree, she reaches into the pocket and she finds a pair of shears with blood on them. And decides that they were used to chop off Liam's finger. And so Mr. Hamilton starts beating the living shit out of her with a chain. That's a pretty big leap, though. She just finds some shears and is like, these must have been the shears that chopped off my boyfriend's finger. I mean, maybe there was more to it. I read this like two months ago. Like she sent it to a DNA lab real quick. Just real fast. (laughs) I think there was blood on them. So I think she was like, is that blood? Oh, my God. This was... 
It's awfully judgy for somebody carrying around a basket full of heads. Still only one head, but that's fine because he starts beating her with a chain, so she cuts his head off. Now she has two. Hmm. Double the heads. Exactly. So then she goes to the police station, and the police chief's son is there. His name is Hank, and Hank's a little piece of shit. Uh, He tricks her into a cell and starts torturing her by running the current of a taser through the puddles of water on the ground because she was dripping wet. It's a comic. Yeah, okay. Which, of course, makes her wet herself. Oh, no. Wait. What? That's in the comic? Yes. In the defense of... I don't know. So, it grosses out Hank. So, at least it's not turned into a sexual thing. But I'm really sorry. There wasn't really any other reason besides, like, what, like showing that Hank is grossed out by bodily functions which I didn't necessarily need. So to me, that was almost like another sexualization. I feel like that's way more sexualized than the rain. Like this like helpless girl that like somebody makes her wet herself. Like there are, there are guys that are really into that kind of a situation. Yeah. Like he shocks her and he's like, Oh my God, did you piss yourself? She's like, I'm sorry. I couldn't help it. Oh God. Is his gross out of, bodily fluid situation is that used later on no not really i don't know he's just supposed to be portrayed as this like wimpy not a real man okay man and i think that was part of it because he then tells the story of like how he got a puppy and he loved the puppy until the puppy peed on the floor and then he was like oh my god no that's so gross get rid of it anyway i don't know that scene seems a lot more unnecessary to me but I'm sorry, I couldn't help it. <laughs> I'm adding tone there. Obviously, it was text, but her response was, I'm sorry, I couldn't help it. Anyway, she eventually gets away and chops Hank's head off as well. She finds out through Hank, because Hank can't keep a secret, that the convicts are dead. And it was Sal, who was the first guy who was in the house. We find out his name at that point. Mr. Hamilton, Hank, and the police chief wearing the convict's jumpsuits who broke into the house to kidnap Liam. Okay. And so she calls the police chief with the phone at the office and has Hank pretend to still have his head attached. Um, so she knows where to go. So she goes out onto a boat where the police chief is holding Liam hostage and... Basically, I can't remember exactly where, but she finds out everyone's reason for wanting Liam dead because it turns out that everyone thought Liam was wearing a wire. Wearing a wire during what? While he was interning with the police chief. Oh, to try to find corruption. Yes. Okay. Basically. So Sal wanted Liam dead because Sal is gay and had hit on Liam. And this is back in the 80s. Yeah. So, you know. Hamilton had a drug ring. Mr. Hamilton did. And I think like wanted to recruit Liam or I think maybe he sold Liam weed or something. A drug ring. It was just weed. Like, yeah, whatever. The real big one was Hank. So here's the story with Hank. There was a girl who had been working for the police chief's office and Hank had been hooking up with her and she ended up getting pregnant. So what does Hank do? Hank Punches her in the stomach and shoves her down a flight of stairs to make her miscarry. 
So she's going to tell everybody, but then Madam Police Chief pays her $10,000 to shut the fuck up and get the fuck out of town because no one's going to do that to her son. No wonder Hank's such a little bitch. This girl ended up committing suicide. She took the money, but then she committed suicide. (sighs) This gets real heavy. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, it is relevant later, but she still had the $10,000 on her, and she had jumped off a bridge, so it was all, like, floating in the water when the police group went. The police group? Yeah, like the chief and um, Liam and stuff like that. The police chief didn't want anyone to find out that the artifacts are stolen artifacts. So that's why he was worried about the wire. In the end, she ends up beheading the police chief, but she also beheads Liam because he, A, was talking shit about the girl, basically saying she deserved everything that happened to her because she was trash. Uh, His words, not mine. But then also because he took $2,000 of the $10,000 that she had been paid that was floating in the water after she died to buy an engagement ring for June. I don't know if that's a reason to kill somebody. She wasn't using that money. I'm just saying. June was very upset. I think June was getting a little too used to chopping heads off. It's like a like a Pringle. Like once you chop, you can't stop. Once you pop, the fun don't stop. That doesn't seem I'm sorry. I don't I I feel like she's kind of supposed to be like this heroine because she's like ending all these corrupt people. But I feel like at some point she's starting to just like kill anybody that does her wrong. It's like she sees somebody jaywalking and it's like. Well, eventually she takes her basket full of heads. Mm -hmm. She now has five. A vast collection. She goes to the bridge where the girl had jumped off of to kill herself and she dumps all the heads off the bridge. While she's doing that, the police chief's maid pulls up. And it's like, what are you doing there? Da, 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 da. And after a brief conversation, we find out that the maid had the wire the whole time. The end. <laughs> it was the maid the whole time. The maid with the wire in the gallery of Viking artifacts. <laughs> okay. So all in all, I would give this book four out of five. I don't know, Viking axes. I really want to say heads in a basket, but that's really low-hanging fruit. Yeah, I was going to say talking heads. It was really well done. It was really well illustrated. It was really well paced. I could have done with a little less sexualization and a little bit more, like, fear. But that's my only real complaint. That's fair. So if you were in the basket of heads, would you be killed? Honestly, because the curse of the axe... No one dies, so I wouldn't. But I also wouldn't even be beheaded because all the people who were are heinous. And as I've mentioned in previous episodes where basically only the bad people die in my book, my parents raised me to be a decent fucking human being. Would you die in Silent Night, Deadly Night? Probably. Kind of like everybody dies, to be truthful. Like, everybody that he crosses dies. And it's not like people that did him wrong. Like, some of the people that were just nice to him, after he, like, sort of, like, clicks out a little bit, like, he just kills everybody. The group of people sledding. Yeah, the sledders. Well, so two of the sledders are bullying the other two sledders, and so, like, they die. But 
even like the store people, like his boss was a nice guy. His boss did make him dress up like Santa, but like didn't pressure him to it. He's like, you just have to dress like Santa. And he never protests or anything like that. So really, it's just like everybody dies. But this is a different boss than the supervisor person who was. Yes, this is the owner. Okay. Just checking, just making sure. Yeah, there was the owner and then there was a supervisor. The supervisor, he probably did deserve to get strangled with Christmas lights, but the boss was like, okay. And then there was this other woman who worked there and she was just like, well, she was like really sunny and like one of those like people who talked a lot. Oh no, she deserves, (laughs) she deserved it. But yeah, I think he just killed literally everybody. The only people he, the only people he really seemed to not kill were children. So I'm not a child even though I act like one sometimes. So that's that. No comment. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Uh, If you would like to find us on social media, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter and Goodreads at Second to Die Pod. You can also email us questions, comments, concerns, or suggestions at secondtodiepod at gmail.com. And remember, if you can't be first, you can always be second to die.